Welcome, uh, Michael Cazzoni here with uh, Higginbotham and the next installment of Hig Talks. And I uh, got a fantastic guest here with us today, and Joe Lazowski, the CEO and President of Tangram Interiors. Joe, welcome, and thanks for making the, uh, the trip out here to Fort Worth. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, kind of keep it simple. The goal of this is, is really kind of a couple things. One, just kind of under, understand your story, understand your background a little bit. Um, talk a lot about Tangram, what it is you guys do, what makes you guys unique, and how you're supporting your clients. And then finally, just get some of your views and advice on uh, entrepreneurship and kind of how it's impacted your life to get here to this point. So um, kind of get things rolling and started here. Let's start from the beginning. You know, what's where you're from, where are you from, what's your background, and kind of your story before getting to, to Tangram. Well, I, I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, which is the headquarters of Ford Motor Company. My dad was a car engineer at Ford Motor Company, so yeah. hence my lifelong love of, of cars. But uh, I grew up in Dearborn uh, with two, two sisters, a younger and an older sister, and in an unlikely situation that I'd ever end up owning a business. But my dad was a very cautious engineering type kind of guy, really smart guy, but super yeah. introvert. And my mother, who never graduated high school, was the ex extrovert in my family. So she was one who was always encouraging me to do more, do more, do more. Yeah. It was interesting. My, and my dad was always like, that seems risky to me. Yeah. You know, Take, taking the next step is always yeah. interesting. My, my mom was the same way when my mom did go to college, but she started her own business. And dad was an engineer and went down the kind of the straight and narrow path to get to that point. So it's interesting how the dynamics maybe influenced you a little bit. So um, so obviously you went to Michigan, so venturing into TCU country is a little hostile, but maybe not so much. Uh, it's a little raw at this point. A little raw. We're only, we're only a couple weeks removed. Maybe next year it'll be a little different, but, um, um, but so you went to Michigan and then I believe you immediately went into kind of the furniture industry. Was that kind of a goal? Was that a thought process on your, what, what led you to that point? I, I didn't actually go into okay. the furniture industry. My degrees, believe it or not, are in chemistry and math. Different. My intention was to go to medical school because my dad was pushing me to go to medical yeah. school. Thankfully and ironically, I didn't go to medical school. I didn't get in, so I didn't have a choice. I thought what I did do, because I had a chemical background, so I went in, I, did, I knew I didn't want to be a chemist. Yeah. I felt, you know, when I was in the lab, mm -hmm. I was, I could do the work, but I was miserable. Because I would consider myself a people person, yeah. not not a not a person who's doing science experiments all day long, and so I, I never fit in in that, in that relationship. So uh, somebody gave me the advice that I should go into sales. So I went into I took an entry level chemical engineering sales job, yeah, with a company called uh, Hercules Chemical, which is the the maker of dynamite. That's their claim to fame. They're an offshoot of Dupont. That's an interesting story. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. <laughs> And, uh, and it actually was really fun, and it was, it, was, it was kind of the start of how everything happened to me. When I first took the job in sales, again, my dad was an engineer, so he looked at people as, he called salespeople peddlers, right? <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't understand making yeah. a living as, as selling something. And, and those of us who have been in sales know that that's a very difficult and, uh, but highly rewarding career if you're good at it. And I was fortunate enough that I found out that I was good at it early on. Very... First month I was on the job, we had our sales, uh, big national sales meeting mm -hmm. somewhere in Indiana. I don't remember where the resort. And I remember going to this thing, and there was a big event where they're giving out sales awards, like we just did at Tangram a couple yeah. nights ago. And I remember we had about 400 salespeople at the time nationally. And I said to myself, I'm going to be on that stage next year. And I was. I was determined to be good at sales. And so I did that for four years. And in the four years that I was there, I went from entry-level salesperson. In the third year I was there, I was the number three salesperson. Wow. Fourth year I was there, I was the number one salesperson in the country. And then I resigned. But it was a good career. Yeah. And it gave me a lot of confidence. And it, and it, and it kind of goes to my entrepreneur story because... I would, four years out of college, I was making triple what my father was making. Wow. And after he'd been in Ford for 30 years. Wow. So I went home to see my parents to tell them I decided <laughs> to resign 
and go into the furniture business because I had a relationship with uh, my college girlfriend worked for Steelcase. That's okay. how I got into the business. I went home to my parents' home. And my, my dad was really proud of you know the mm-hmm. fact that I was being so successful in that business. And I told him I took a sales job in a furniture company for literally one tenth of what I was making wow. and selling chemicals as a draw, not even as wow. a salary. And my dad looked at me and he goes, are you an effing idiot? <laughs> Why would you do that? And I said, because I know I can sell anything. Mm-hmm. I'd rather walk in the front door than the back door. True. And so... Um, I told you I had a relationship to, to Steelcase mm-hmm. people. And uh, I used to go to the parties with my college girlfriend as the plus one. And so her boss was always trying to hound me to go to work for, for Steelcase. Yeah. And I said, you know, that that's not going to work for me. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I don't want to work with my girlfriend. That would have been dumb. That would have been dumb <laughs> in hindsight because that, that relationship ended over 30 years ago. So... Um, I decided to go into that business and I, I just decided I wanted to be, I, I enjoyed being around artistic things and people. Yeah. And so part of the advice I'd give anybody is, you know, it's very common for people to say, do what you love when you get up every day, because that's what you're going to spend your time doing. Yeah. I do do what I love every day. I get up and I'm around uh, architects and designers yeah. and salespeople and creatives and that makes me happy. Yeah. I, I enjoy seeing what they can do with their yeah. talents. Well, it's interesting because it's you almost couldn't find two completely different industries from right. blowing up buildings to now you're essentially designing and building the interiors for your clients. And right. so just the thought process of, to your point, it's sales is one thing, having a job is one thing, but if you don't enjoy it, is that something that you want to continue to do, even though you are successful with it? Where you know, I think that may get a little bit more when we get into kind of the entrepreneurship kind of questions, but taking that risk of doing something you love versus doing something for a paycheck. Yeah, I've never been afraid of risk. Mm-hmm. And I've never taken a job for money. Yeah. And um, as a result of that, I've, I've, the, one of the filters that I put myself through and I would encourage other people to do is put yourself through that filter of, Will, will this bring you joy and can you get up and want to do it every day? Can you can you make a good living at it and can you do it for the long haul? What would you say, you know, for people who don't know who Tangram is and Tangram Interiors, you know, what would you look at them and say, here's who we are, here's what we do? So we're a commercial interiors firm. We do furniture, flooring, and audiovisual. Okay. So those are the primary businesses we're in. And we're, we're, whether it's a ground-up office building or a renovation of the current space, and, and we cover lots of different industries, you know, we cover the entertainment industry, the legal industry, and uh, the healthcare industry. So anything that's affiliated with the interior of the space, that's what we do. Well, let's fast forward a, a little bit in your career. And what kind of brought you to Tangram? Uh, because you stepped in and kind of took over, maybe add some more color to that, but from getting into the furniture side of things, what brought you to Tangram in, I think it was the early 2000s, 2002. When I told you I, I started at the a furniture company back, this was in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked there for 13 years, and one of the pieces of advice I'd give any young person going into a business is that <clears throat> I would always take on projects that I wasn't being paid for, wasn't being asked to do, mm-hmm. because I was just learning, just trying to do the experience, get the experience, yeah. and I get the experience, and it. As crass as this sounds, I was doing it on somebody else's nickel. <laughs> so if I screwed it up, it didn't cost me anything. You know, it, it helped build my uh, resume, helped build my confidence. And mm-hmm. I, I did that. I worked at that company for 13 years. Wow. Then I, again, made another, uh, what my father would consider a dumb decision. I was the vice president of sales of that company at that time. And I left to go start my own business. Mm-hmm. And I started my uh, business with me and one other person uh, sitting in a room probably like this size, whereas the, the week before I had 150 people reporting to me. And again, I, I took a 100% pay cut yep. for, for two years. But I knew it was the right decision. 
I went to I started a competitive business to who I was working for, and I built that up and and I kept it for six years. And I had no intention of leaving. My wife at the time was a assistant professor at the University of Michigan Medical School, so she was very vested in her career, and that business was doing very well. And again, was now making a very good living, and uh, I was happy there. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing a good job, sometimes the phone rings, <clears throat> and the phone rang with the former CEO of Steelcase and, and former CEO of Ford Motor Company. Oh, wow. A guy named Jim Hackett. Those are two phones to also take. Yeah. Well, no, it's the same guy. <laughs> oh, that's right. Because he used yeah. to be the CEO of Steelcase, then he went on to be the CEO of Ford Motor Company. Wow. At the time, he was CEO of Steelcase. And uh, I remain good friends with mm-hmm. him to this day. So he calls me up and he said, we have one of our premier locations distribution centers in Southern California that's failing and I'd like for you to come meet with me and let me convince you why this would be a good idea for you. I'm like, but Jim, I'm, I'm settled. Yeah. I'm in a good place. He says, just come listen to me. And so that happened simultaneously to somebody trying to buy a business that I owned in Detroit. It was it was like it was meant to be. Yeah. A former Detroit Piston, a guy by the name of Vinnie Johnson, he was now an entrepreneur and owned a bunch of automotive supply businesses. So he he literally called me up within the same few week period of time and said, "I'm interested in buying your business. Would you meet with me?" <laughs> I told him the same story. I'm really not interested. It's all good. But you know, he kept calling me, and Jim Hackett kept calling me, and I thought, "Well, this must be some sort of sign." Yeah. I should listen. So I, I, I was simultaneously talking to uh, Vinnie Johnson about buying my business. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Steelcase was recruiting me to take over Tangro. Because these uh, distribution businesses are independently owned. Okay. They're not owned by the manufacturer. So the fact that Steelcase owned their third largest distributor wow. in the world was because they were in serious financial trouble. Okay. So they took it over because previous owner couldn't pay their trade receivables. Wow. So I eventually <clears throat> got to the place where I decided to sell the business, or I wanted to, and I wanted to move to California. But the, but the biggest, I didn't have to do either. Yeah. And it was very risky for me to take, take on going to California. But more importantly, at that time, I had two young children that were in second and third grade. And my wife was just a couple years away from being a tenured professor. (laughs) That's another fun conversation. So after all the negotiations were happening, I, I went, I remember specifically, I went home, told my wife, this is the deal. I said, but my career is not more important than yours. So, uh, whatever you decide, I'm good with, and I mean it. So, uh, she said, I need to think about it. And for a whole week, my wife didn't even mention it. <laughs> it was torture for me. Because I was thinking, I'm, I'm going to California, yeah. I'm going to take over this failing business, and I'm going to resurrect it. And so she finally came home one day and said, I've given this a lot of thought. And I've come to the understanding that an opportunity like this rarely crosses anybody's path and will not cross your path a second time. So she goes, so I, and I also know if you don't do this, you'll be miserable and you'll resent me. <laughs> so let's go. Yeah. So we sold the house, packed up, sold the, bit, sold the business, mm-hmm. sold the house, moved to California where we literally knew one person in the entire state. Now, there's 40 million people yeah. in California. I knew one guy, and he was one of my college buddies. Wow. And he lived in San Monica. And Tangram at the time for the was, was doing around $60 million in sales, but had lost $22 million over the previous wow. five years. So they were insolvent. Yes. 
So again, I went into a situation where I was like, risky, <laughs> big pay cut, yep. a lot of debt. But, but I knew I could fix it. Mm -hmm. And I knew uh, just like entering into the Texas market, when you have a lot of opportunity, yeah. as long as you don't mismanage things, there's going to be a world of opportunity out there. Yeah. And that turned out to be a, a really great decision. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we moved to California in August of 2002. Um, and the, and the, the company was in really dire straits. Mm -hmm. It was financially dire straits, but more importantly, the people were in bad shape. Really? Really bad. Because they hadn't gotten a raise in five years. Mm -hmm. Everybody was like, when am I getting laid off? Yeah. When are we going to go under? And so everybody was afraid. So building the credibility back was job one. Yeah. What did that, what did that look like? So I was actually reading an article, I think it's, it's probably 2017 that you did and it talked about you taking over Tangram and when you went in there talked about how it was in such rough shape. And yeah. I think there's a question that stuck out, stuck out to me that I wrote it down and it's kind of your approach to it and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on it, but you kind of looked at it and said, you went to your clients and said, what do you expect and need from a company like us? And you talked to the engineering firms, the design firms and consulting firms and almost, almost in a way it sounded like you let them guide you with what they needed from somebody in the industry versus just what they're typically getting on the day-to-day -day. and so did that kind of was that kind of your approach coming in to turn this around of maybe we need to turn this on its head because you have to like you said employee morale is low you're losing money like crazy what is the shift that we need to make internally to change the perception of tangling within the industry we started making the company profitable pretty quickly the first two years were really tentative mm -hmm. because our client base and our employee base were both angry and didn't trust leadership. And I, you know, when I'm, day one, I gave my whole speech about what I, the things I believe in. And one of those tent poles is trust. Yeah. And it, it's them, me trusting them, them trusting me. Yeah. So I had to make sure that I shored up the employee base, staff base, and then the client base. Um, but I went out and started talking to the clients and the, the design community in particular, um, and who bring us a lot of business and real estate people who bring us a lot of business. And I said, what's wrong? Why are we here? And they gave me all their reasons, you know, and a lot of it was, you know, failure of service, mm -hmm. lack of trust, didn't know the people, high turnover, all the things that make it difficult for a company to uh, succeed long term. And the other question I asked them, I said, what, what is it you want? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they, they, most people don't know what they want. Yeah. They, they can give you a visceral response <laughs> of what's wrong. <laughs> but, you know, a few nuggets were out there because we were still not a big company at the time, but we were big enough where, mm -hmm. we, where we could afford to expand our businesses. And then, you know, we, I very much focus on the, the staff of, of the company. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it took me, like I say, two years to get to the place where they trusted me. Yeah, uh, and that I meant what I said. You know, the, the previous owner sat in a an office on the on a floor that was removed from all the people. Well, I closed all that. Yeah, I tore it all down, and I sit in a workstation out in the middle of the office, right between the the coffee pot and the bathroom. Yeah. So you got to ask me at one point. Everybody's seeing you. Everybody's going to talk to me. <laughs> I'm very interested in what's going on. In, in their uh, uh, personal happiness, yeah. And I have a philosophy of promoting from within. So if you look at the leadership team as we've, you know, quadrupled in size, mm -hmm. almost all the leaders uh, have come from within. And a lot of them started right out of college in the company. I think that's was that always kind of your vision when taking over Tangram in a way. Was it you know when you took over in two thousand and two and where you are today? You know, was that always Kind of your game plan from day one or how has that evolved with one the industry with the times changing but taking it from almost a broken to the success that it is now was that always the vision that you had and the steps to get there i wish i could say i had that it's like <laughs> some visionary thing I, I just you know i've done startups and i've done turnarounds mm -hmm. and 
uh, they both have a lot of things in common, but the, the most things that they have in common is, you know, having the right people sitting in the right yeah. seats, being motivated to do their job without me standing over them, and 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 then having client in, interactions. So I, I spend a fair amount of my time with the staff and a fair amount of my time with the uh, clients. Yeah. So I have a good pulse of what's going on. You know, every company has a failure. It's not a matter of did you fail. It's it, how did you handle it. Right. And every every you know business has issues with their staff that their their struggles. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're the face that's in there, like okay, how do we fix this? Yeah. People gain trust and I feel very fortunate that we've gotten there over time. Well, it sounds like you build an incredible culture, and I think about as you know the, the similarities with Higginbotham and how. You guys have grown as you know, Higginbotham came from a one office location to 2,000 employees and across the country and, and coast to coast. But there's always, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on it, is how they maintain that culture and vision as they've grown. And, you know, you guys have moved into the Dallas, and I believe that's your first physical location. You obviously walk all over the country, but your first physical location outside of California and coming into DFW. So, how do you view that as? Kind of the leader of the organization to make sure that you're keeping the company culture kind of across the board and the true vision values of what Tanger stands for. Well, and you know, we have five locations in California, mm-hmm. and all of those are run by somebody who's come up through the ranks. Okay. And so it, it was, uh, it was a, and though many of those were buying other locations in California were turnaround situations there. So we, we, Again, we find somebody who's, who's a bright light and mm-hmm. give them the training and the opportunity yeah. to be successful. And then we move them and you know, we tap them on the shoulder and say, how would you like to run this part of our yeah. business? And so it sends a message to the whole organization that this is the way we do things. Mm-hmm. And you, you have opportunity as long as you are dedicated and you perform. You know, I get, I've been offered all sorts of opportunities all around the country. And... Um, I mostly turn them down. Okay. I specifically said yes to Texas. <laughs> Why is that? Well, first of all, um, this is an explosive growth market. And it's turned out to be that. And, you know, when I get up in the morning, uh, when, when I'm getting ready, I always turn the business news on. And you can't, you, 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 you can't miss yeah. the fact that you know, Texas and Florida were the two growth states that are happening in the country, and maybe Tennessee after that. Yeah. So I'm like, I should pay attention to this offer. <laughs> Take a look at it. I should look at this. And uh, and again, it was a turnaround situation. Mm-hmm. It was a situation where the where the business was failing. They had lost money for a number of periods of time. Their sales had gone down, down, down four to five years in a row. So I knew if the, if the business is going down. In an explosive growth market, something's going on. Something's wrong. Yeah. So I, I, I came out and took took a look at it, and I, I studied the business opportunity in more detail in, in Texas, and mm-hmm. it, it was a no brainer yeah. for us to make the decision to, to come here and open an office. So how does it? And, and we get this a lot because we work with a lot of smaller businesses that are trying to grow. And I think of a good friend of mine who's got his own business and he's trying to figure out how to like grow versus kind of organically going and putting somebody in there to say, hey, we're going to start from the ground up um, to buying a local location or buying something like that. Is it is that always been the case? Have you explored other areas of saying, hey, we want to buy something that's already there versus kind of going out and putting boots on the ground and building it from from zero? Well, we've done both. Okay. And, you know, there's the argument that when you start something from ground zero, you, you start with your culture. Yeah. And your way of doing things, and you don't have the baggage of the angry staff <laughs> and the angry customers and, yes. and all the other things that come along with buying a failing business. So there's, we've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a little bit slower path, typically. Um, and then we've also done the, the turnaround situation. Well, when that's to our own horn, but when, when you've done it a few times, you can come in and tell a story. Yeah. And the story is this is how we've done it in the past. And people are like, okay, well, that sounds reasonable to me. That sounds feasible. Yeah. Yep. 
And then um, what we did here in Dallas is we took one of our high energy, high performing salespeople, <laughs> sales leaders yep. from California. It was funny, she goes, Ryan, when I offered her the job, I said, I specifically want you for this job, and I told her why. And she goes, Joe, I'm a lifelong Californian. I, I can't move to Texas. There's no way. I'm sorry. And she turned me down within wow. like 10 minutes. <laughs> that was funny. I barely got the story out. <laughs> and then uh, I said, well, just go home and talk to your family about it. Yeah. And before you say final no, sleep on it and give me, mm-hmm. let's talk again tomorrow. She called me four hours later. And she said, I talked to my husband and my kids. We're in. Okay, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, and so when you do it, first of all, you bring a high energy person into yeah. the building, that helps. But also, um, uh, she, she brought our culture into yeah. the organization right away. So the, the turnaround was fast as far as the culture goes because mm-hmm. people were like, uh, understood right, right out of the gate how we operate and yeah. how we do things. And, and it's, it's been very successful so far. Yeah. And I, I can attest to that because I remember my wife interviewed with Amber, who you brought out here, and I think she turned Amber down the first two times. Oh, is that right? Uh, she reached out, but she kept coming back and saying, there's something about her, and I want to work for her, not necessarily the company. I think it goes to your point of you're working for the people, and the people understand what your vision and what your goal is of tenure, and they kind of eat, sleep, and breathe that. You know, it, it makes it easier and it allows you to put that into the marketplace. And I think that's, again, I think some of the similarities in terms of how Higginbotham has grown is we actually have a committee that's kind of a values and culture committee when they go out and look to acquire other agencies. It's, we want to make sure they're the right fit. To your point, you get a lot of offers to maybe come in and take over, but is it the right fit culturally? Is it the right fit business-wise to go in and work with them? Because you don't want to put a bad situation in with kind of the brand in which you've built. Um, right. And it's not the right fit, but if you have the right people you're putting in there to take over, then it allows you to project what it sounds like externally tangled in the marketplace. Whereas internally, you have her being the mouthpiece for everybody that's there. But we needed to go in and make the brand known in the territory. It's a different, different piece. You know, I've seen a lot of the projects you guys have done, and you work with companies that are Fortune 50 down to the mom and pop that's trying to get out of this basement and get a location open. You know, when you kind of think about it and, you know, think about our industry as well on the insurance side is a lot of people do a lot of similar things, um, but there's always some that stand out from somebody else. So when you think about Tangram, you know, coming into this market, obviously being successful nationally, what is it about Tangram that you think kind of sets you guys apart from other furniture dealers that are in the marketplace? Well, you know, you have to be good at storytelling. It has to be backed up with, you know, real infrastructure and, and real truth. And so we're good at, we had to be start out with being good at the storytelling. And, you know, we did bump into a few times, well, we don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're like, what? I don't know who we are. How can, <laughs> How, you can you <laughs> How can we not know this? Our story is, is such that, you know, we've been, we're successful with all sizes of businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done many, many multi-million square foot campuses at the same time doing the 5,000 square foot space for a startup organization in yeah. the right. And, and one of the things that I always try to tell a client is like, look, we want to be with you mm-hmm. from the beginning all the way through the maturation of your business and uh, have you, help you create a place where you can attract and retain people, right? Because you know, the whole return to office thing is, is what I talk about 10, 10 times <laughs> a day now because we're right in yes. the center of the bullseye when it comes to that conversation. But having an office that people want to go to is important, whether you're a small office or you're a million square foot tenant. A lot of HR directors, CFOs, CEOs, they're all having that same conversation of post-COVID getting people back into the office. And what does that look like? How do we make them entice them to coming into that workplace? And so I'm interested to get your, maybe it's a two-part question is, you know, internally, how has that worked for Tangram coming out of COVID with getting employees, how do you embrace, you know, maybe a hybrid work environment, but also what are you seeing from clients from a design perspective that they're putting in place to modify the workplace that's allowing them to come in and actually feel welcome into the office place and feel comfortable going back in there and wanting to go back into the office? Well, first of all, nobody has it completely figured out. 
I didn't think so. <laughs> and it's, and it's going to take time before, yeah. it, and I see it evolving in, in front of my eyes mm-hmm. because there was a time when nobody wanted to go into the office because they were afraid and rightfully so. Yeah. And then, then people got used to working from home and didn't want to come back to the office. Yes. And so, but if you talk to, you know, 90% of the CEOs out there, they want people in the office. Yeah. And they don't want to, I think there's a misconception that people, the CEOs want people in the office because they're of a control issue. I don't think that's it at all. Uh, I look at it as a, how, how do we maintain our culture and how do we grow our people? I was, uh, and, and we're getting to the place where we're, we're going to have to start doing some metrics to figure out to see what yeah. we could actually, what's actually working. I first think about, you know, somebody my age, I don't need to go to the office. I know how to do my job and I, I don't need any mentoring. Yeah. Okay. But I think of the, the, the people that are the younger people, you know, they're the ones that are missing out. In my opinion, you know, if you're a younger person starting out in your career and you say, I'm only taking a job that I can work from home on, that's, that's not hurting the company necessarily. Oftentimes I think it's going to hurt you. Yeah. Because you're the one who misses, misses out. You're the one who's going to be not thought of. Mm-hmm. You're the one who's going to be like, I miss out on all the wisdom of the people that are around me. Yeah. And so I, I strongly encourage younger people in particular <laughs> to go back to the office yeah. on your own volition because that's where, that's where the knowledge is. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, you know, we're, we're now seeing in, in this exact moment, we're seeing, you know, there's a lot of layoffs in the tech industry. Yeah. And all of a sudden people are going, but there's no more jobs for me. There used to be a plethora of mm-hmm. those sort of jobs. Now they're not. And so what's the story that they can tell? Yeah. And um, what wisdom have they gained over the last couple of years? Now, the part I said people, nobody's figured it out yet. I think it's going to take some time for, for, for this to play out. Mm-hmm. And there will be data. Eventually, people yeah. are going to get to the point of collecting data. And not collecting data like you weren't in the office collecting yeah. data. It's going to be like, who's the most productive people that we have? I was reading an interesting article um, that Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, mm-hmm. was speaking to his staff of 47,000 people. And it was super controversial because he said that 90, 97% of their sales come from the top 50% of their salespeople. So then you do the math, and then they, they measured themselves, if I have this accurately, you know, the productivity of the people we hire during the pandemic is like significantly lower than the people we hired really? before the pandemic. Why is that? Well, I don't think anybody knows, including him, why that is. But but the the, the data suggests that they weren't getting trained and mentored mm-hmm. as as well as somebody who's in, in the office. And he called it swivel chair training, <laughs> where you turn your chair and ask somebody a question. Yeah. And that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. With that being said, you know you, the world has changed permanently. Mm-hmm. The, the Eight to five, five days a week is probably never coming back either. So we, we have to find out what, how do we do, do mentoring, knowledge transfer, engagement, culture, and do it in a, in a hybrid environment yeah. because that, that's what people want. Yeah. And um, that, that's the, the magic that we have to figure out. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I remember when, a prior company that I worked with when they kind of went back into the office, it was similar to that where everybody had been away for so long. But you have those conversations and it's somebody actually even said it kind of resonated with what you're just saying is I never would have thought to ask you that question if I didn't see you. Right. Because a lot of times they don't pick up the phone. Maybe we'll just send a quick email or a text message or chat. But that's not the same thing as asking that question in person and then seeing where that conversation goes. And then the idea generation, the brainstorming ideas, especially with you know a lot of people being in sales and design on your side of things as well. With um, it's 
you need that interaction to see what other people are doing um, to also help your own ideas in the end as well. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of jobs that can be done, mm -hmm. task-oriented jobs that can be done anywhere from any place. But, but a lot of the creative work in particular, the collaboration matters. The idea of collaboration happens in, in the room or, or at the proverbial water <laughs> or, or, you know, where you think if you bump into somebody and you start a conversation and, and you have a, you build on an idea from one thing to another and that's where the creativity happens. And that doesn't happen on a Zoom or Teams call. It's like you do the issue, we hang up, we go yeah. on to the next thing. We don't, we don't iterate. Yes. Yeah. So kind of continuing with the return to work um, aspect of things, which is we get a lot of that on our end with executives and HR directors. You know, how are you guys helping from a design perspective and working with your clients to create an environment that employees want to come back into when they've been away for so long? You know, one of the taglines I've been using lately is make your office a magnet, not a mandate. I love it. And that's because you have to, people have to want to come back. And what are they coming back to? You know, it's our, people thought that our industry was going to die. That people weren't <laughs> going to go back to the office. That there would be no, no, nobody would be buying anything to yeah. in an office space because why would I do that? I'd sit in that kitchen table and work. do everything. But the reality is, is that a lot of people and a lot of executives in particular want people back in the office, but you can't bring them back into a space that's ugly, old, and dated. Yeah. If you're going to have a hybrid workspace with collaboration, there has to be a reason for them to come back. If you're going to collaborate, but you don't have the tools and the spaces for them to collaborate in, whether it's technology or place, place matters. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to come back to a dated old place. And so a hybrid workplace has to have all, all those things in it. It has to be something that attracts people to it. Yeah. A good place to be alone and be quiet. A good place to work in a small group of two or three people and integrate technology mm -hmm. or a larger space that accommodates teams. Yeah. But they all but they all need to be rethought and renovated. And so we actually had a record year last year because people were renovating wow. their spaces, which is when I tell people <laughs> that they're shocked, like really record year. Yeah. Towards the end of COVID, absolutely. Yeah. Pre-COVID, you would never hear the CEO talk about the space. Never even think about it. But now the corporate real estate people are calling us. What do we do? What do I tell them? You know, because um, now all of a sudden, space matters to the CEO. Yeah. I mean, because they want to have a space that attracts people to come into. Because it's now it has become strategic. Mm -hmm for the CEO to have people in the office and have a reason for them to be there and collaborate. And so we have to build a space that's attractive to people. So kind of shifting to maybe entrepreneurship a little bit. And, you know, you, we had talked a little while ago and it said something to me that's kind of stuck with me to where you consider yourself an accidental entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know you mentioned earlier, I don't think you ever saw yourself being an entrepreneur. And your, your dad was obviously vehemently against it, where your mom said it was, was more go for it. Right. Um, but what do you mean by that? Because I think there's also a lot of business owners that we work with that probably found themselves saying, I never thought I was going to own a business. I was happy with what I was doing. But So what do you mean by kind of saying accidental entrepreneur and how do you find yourself into that? Yeah, well, like I said a little while ago, I was raised in the, my dad being a safety person. You know, he worked for Ford for 30 plus years and, and uh, he was a, I, I, I bought a Fiat Bolt Fiat when I was in college, and my dad wouldn't let me park it anywhere he could even see it. He was so dedicated to the company, yeah. but but he was he was loyal to his career and his company, but he was also um, felt that he got a good job, mm -hmm. he was paid well, and they, the company took care of him, and he was loyal to the company. He was risk adverse. Yeah. I didn't realize, I never thought when I got into my first two jobs that I would ever own a business. It was only until I got to be a senior manager in, in the second company that I had the furniture business and I worked in that I, I was watching the owner, I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> and why, why am I not doing that? Yeah. And so, that's, 
and, and, and as I kind of explained already, I, I wasn't risk adverse, mm -hmm. and I wasn't afraid to try something new because I, I, I will tell you that I, I didn't do it until I was in my thirties, and by that time I had built up enough uh, internal confidence mm -hmm. that I knew I could do it, or if I failed, I could always go do something else. Right, but I, but I should try. Yeah, and um, so, and and then I, when I look back in the story I've told you, when I look back, I, I made several. Even when I went from the chemical industry to the furniture yeah. industry, that was, for, for lack of a better term, betting on myself. Yeah. I was betting that I could outdo what I did in, in the chemical mm -hmm. business, and so I decided at one point that, that I should do that I should try, yeah. and, and that's what happened. And so, and I did it. I always did these things at the riskiest points in my life. <laughs> you know, when I, my wife had school debt and we had little kids and mm -hmm. I was I was putting a good job where I was making a lot of money so I could go to debt and make nothing. Make nothing yep. And so at, when they work out over time you, you realize you can take on bigger and bigger things. It's, mm -hmm. uh, one of the analogies my CFO said to me, he said, Joe, it's a lot like working out. He says when you first start out the weights seem heavy yeah. and then they're not so heavy and then you pick up a bigger weight and you lift a bigger weight. And over time you can lift heavier weights mm -hmm. and, and and be in better shape. And he says, so your, your mental acuity to be able to take on these things, you build confidence and, and a history in your head of how you can do these mm -hmm. things. And, and it's kind of like when we talk about the game slows down for a quarterback over yeah. time. That's how it feels to me now because I, I'm not afraid. I'm, not, I'm accidental because I started out as, as wanting to just have a steady job to the point where mm -hmm. I wanted more and more challenges and taking on more and more risk. And, uh, but, you know, it was a big risk to move to California where I knew nobody. Yeah. It was a big risk to move to Texas where we knew nobody took, took on a, uh, another family business. Yeah. It sounds like being risk averse is one of the big most traits to be an entrepreneur. Now, what would be some advice that you give somebody if they came in and said, Joe, I got a business idea and I want to start it? You know, what would be your advice for them for getting started? Well, I'd first, <laughs> I'd first listen to what the idea is. Yeah. And try to, a little while ago, I talked to you about filters. Mm -hmm. You know, how I put myself through these mental filters. And the filter I would ask an entrepreneur, this budding entrepreneur, is tell me about the idea. Yeah. And then the, the how can it make money? Yeah. Because if it can't make money, it, it, it's a hobby. It's not a business. <laughs> so you have to describe how it can make money. Yeah. And if, if it gets through that hurdle, then it could be, how can you grow the business to the point where it's meaningful to, not only for you, but for other people to engage with that business. Then the other thing is, would you love doing this? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason I'm still able to do this at this point in my career is because I still love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it every day. I'm intrigued by, by the people, the creativity, and, and, and the business chess game that I'm playing every day. Yeah. And, and then lastly, are you willing to dedicate and are you willing to fail? I'm not, I've always been willing to fail. If you, if you read any stories about any great entrepreneurs or Abraham Lincoln, they, they have failed over and over and over again. And so I'm not, I'm not afraid of failure. Mm -hmm. And I can point back to lots of different times in my life where I failed. But I, you just got to keep getting back up. And, and so that's, there's always a lot of hard roads for entrepreneurs because there's money struggles, there's people struggles, there's customer struggles. <laughs> And, and if you, you have to be able to persevere yeah. and be able to get up and keep going every single day. I mean, I'll, I love reading stories about great entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and they're all the same story. It's like, it was extremely hard. <laughs> I mean, look at the stories of Elon Musk. He slept yeah. on the floor of all of his businesses, <laughs> right? He didn't become the world's richest man because he didn't work hard exactly. He had a vision and, and he worked hard at it and he, he sold the dream. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, I think back to, you know, some of the CEOs that I've talked with that have started businesses and they all said a similar thing to where it's, 
you have to be passionate about it because it's not a typical nine to five job. You just can't leave. It's it's your business. It's you have other people that are counting on you to leave the organization. Their paycheck relies on it. So if you don't have that passion for it and you don't believe in it, it's not just you personally where you could just put in your resignation and leave. It's it's your actual business, it's your livelihood, and it's other people's livelihood counting on underneath you. And I think that's a very telling you know, almost a burden that he would say it is, that, she, that he carries with himself to make sure it keeps him motivated to continue to build the business to be successful so other people can continue to have their livelihood on top of that. You know, I said a few minutes ago that I've never gotten up to go to work for money. Mm-hmm. I think about money a lot. Yeah. But I think about it in the, in the respect of how do I come keep the company growing? How do I make the company more profitable? Because... You know, we have 400 employees now. Mm-hmm. And so I feel, and then hundreds of subcontractors and, wow. um, and vendors, and we're, all of those people and their families yeah. are relying on us to make sure that we don't fail. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when, I, when I think about it, I think I'm responsible for, for all that, for their livelihoods. There's a lot of people who rely on me and, and, and the company make their mortgage and make their car payments and put the kids through college. And these are all the things that keep me motivated. As a result, the company's been successful and it's all worked out. So we always kind of like to end these, and I know it's everybody's favorite topic with insurance, but we always like to ask as kind of a CEO, starting businesses, building businesses up, you probably had your fair share of fun, not so fun experiences when it comes to insurance. When you think about the industry, on our side of things, you know, what is it that you would like to see change or maybe some frustrating points that when you think about overall insurance? First of all, we spend millions of dollars on insurance. So it's a big line item and it's mm-hmm. something that we pay attention to. What I, what I find frustrating is that it's never explained to the level of detail that's meaningful to, to me anyways. Because you know, banking and insurance are, are, are like personal businesses. Yeah. You have to know your banker and you have to know your insurance. Yeah. People, people don't, don't understand that, I don't think. I, I had to learn that the hard way. Um, but then when you, when you go and you spend all this money on it and then you find out something's not covered, yeah. it's maddening. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, you, you <laughs> promised. You told me one thing. And I didn't get it. Yeah. So what, what I think would be a good policy for the insurance industry is to sit down with people mm-hmm. and say, this is what we cover. Yeah. And these are the extraordinary circumstances we won't cover. Yeah. I had a major brand insurance company doing our uh, home insurance. Been living in this house for about 12 years. And there was an underground leak from the sink in the island to the sink in the kitchen. They were, they were 10 feet away from each other. There was a leak underground. And they told me that wasn't covered. I said, wow, that was a maintenance issue. I'm like, how am I supposed to do maintenance with a pipe that's buried in steps? <laughs> Sorry, not covered. And it cost me $10,000 to fix it because I had to tear up the kitchen, tear up the floor. But I, it's, it, those are the sort of things that create mistrust. Yeah. And so, my advice, if you want to be great and different at the job, would be to tell people, here's the things that you potentially may not be covered for, yeah. and here's a way I can help. Or I can't help, but I want you yeah. to be aware. I think it, it kind of goes back to what you're talking about with taking risks. As long as you, they're open and honest with you on that, it allows you to assess the risk that you're taking on as a business financially. Yeah. is If you know what something's not covered, but you still want to venture down that, then that's a risk that you need to know about. But if it is, and saying, hey, how can we cover this? We want to go down this route. Let's figure out how to make that work. It's, it gets into that entrepreneurship side thing of owning a business of what actual risk am I taking on to the business that we have? I remember one of our lawyers telling me, I am asking his advice. And he finally goes, Joe, that's a risk question. Yeah. It's your decision. Yeah. I'm just the lawyer telling you what the, what the possibilities are. I think that's what we see a lot on the insurance side of things. A lot of it comes down to, you try to simplify it to just, what's the cost? How much is it going to cost me every year to have 
something. And you generally see that a lot of times it's not fully explained to what's covered, whether it's the employee benefits, which is almost now the second highest expense behind payroll for employers at this right. point. You know, what's covered, how is it supporting my employees, is it not, is it? Or on the liability side of things, how is it protecting my business? Where it's, and sometimes it just gets summarized into just what's the final number at the end versus let's look at the overall contract of what you're covering, what's coming with that, and here's why it might cost a little bit more versus just saying, give me the cheapest price and let's move on. I'm always okay paying a little bit more if I feel yeah. I'm getting more. And I, I have a thorough understanding of what I'm buying. I just want to understand it. It's just like you're coming into my business. Yeah. You wouldn't understand. I see things that you're never, ever in a million years yeah. going to see. Those are the sort of things I want somebody to tell me. Mm-hmm. It's like, tell me. Yeah. If you get this sort of an employee situation, you're on your own. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm like, oh. Okay. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> so, um, and you know, there's, there's always tricky things that happen, like changes in employment law mm-hmm. that we, we don't see coming. And, you know, I prided myself on making sure we do the right things for our staff. But you still have a lot of changes, and we're like, oh, well, we didn't know that. So. Well, you're relying on people to keep up with that. You're, you're running a business where, in the end, it still falls on you, but you're hoping the people that you're working with and paying are kind of advising you on everything that you need to know that's going to impact your business at the end. And I think that's, and then it goes back to what you mentioned earlier of turning around Tegram is, Sometimes a simple question is, what do you expect from us? And what's, what do you need from us to allow us on the insurance side to understand your business, which can then point us in the right direction to make sure we're giving the proper information and all the information to you to make a kind of risk-based decision at the end of the day? I don't expect an insurance uh, company to create a nuclear bombshell for yeah. me. <laughs> but what I want to know is where, where, where can I be penetrated? Yeah. Where's your exposure? Where's my exposure? You know, be honest about it. It's okay. As long as I, I'm making the risk decision, I, I can't point the finger back and say you didn't Goes back to you at the end. So well awesome. Well, that kind of wraps everything up, Joe. I you know, I definitely appreciate you taking time. You're obviously busy and coming out here from California. We definitely appreciate you um, kind of sharing your story, um, how you got to where you are and you know, a lot about Tangram. So we uh, we definitely appreciate it and um, We'll uh, hopefully see you around more. All right, thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Joe.